0: All right, we're going to open the Word now, so let's all go to the Bible together. We are in the book of James. We are in the series uh, looking at the book of James or the letter of James, and we're finally in chapter 2 today. I'm going to read this for us, chapter 2, verse 1 to 13, and then Pastor Daniel's going to preach this for us. James, chapter 2, verse 1 to 13, if you guys can follow along with your eyes. Um, I'll be reading from the ESV version, and just a reminder that this is the Word of God. James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at, any, at, any, at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into the court, are they not the ones who bless, blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are, com- you are committing sin and are convinced, convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Verse 11. For he he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. 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 Triumphs over judgment. Amen.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I was doubtful to see this many people at church, especially uh, since the weather is so bleak, but uh, well done for coming. It's good to see every one of you guys here, and it's also good to see uh, those who can't see you, but hopefully, you guys are viewing this. Uh, You're seeing me, uh, those who are joining online. Um, It's really, really encouraging to see the church. I guess, numerically sort of be present as well. Of course, it's not all about that, but uh, especially after what we've gone through in the last couple of months, it is really encouraging to see um, so many people here. Um, Yeah, thank you. Uh, Before I jump into God's word, um, obviously I am just a man, so I need uh, God's help. So why don't we uh, pray and ask him for some help? Uh, Join me in prayer. Father, we are here because you are good. We live because you are gracious, and we are saved because you loved us. Father, we ask that you might grow us in this time, in this moment. Lord, would you do with our lives what you will? Help us to grow in love, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and grow in worshipping and acknowledging you as Lord over all our lives. Father, give us attentive hearts and ears and minds so that we might be transformed more and more into the likeness of your Son, our Lord Jesus. What we know not, Father, would you teach us. What we feel not, would you stir up within us. And what we are not, by your grace, would you make us. Amen. Um, You might not know by the way that I talk and maybe even perhaps the way that I look, but I'm actually not an Australian citizen um, I uh, grew up in, sorry, I, bo- I was born in Korea, and then when I was uh, three, uh, my parents uh, immigrated to New Zealand. And I lived there for about, uh, ten, about eight years uh, until I was about 11 years old, um, and I moved over here to Australia. Um, up until then, before I moved to Australia, life was pretty good. Uh, for the first time in my life, though, uh, when I moved to Sydney, I encountered a little bit of change. Uh, I experienced firsthand what it was like uh, to uh, maybe wake up in the morning and dread going to school. I never felt that before, but when I came to Sydney, I I did. Uh, For the first time in my life, maybe you can relate to this, uh, I I was picked on, um, I was uh, bullied, um, I was, uh, I guess, marginalized, that's probably the better way to say it. Uh, And and at that time, the 11-year-old kid Daniel, I didn't know why this was happening to me. I mean, I was no different to uh, the Daniel that I was uh, back in New Zealand. Uh, why was it that this was happening to me? I mean, maybe it was because I was a New Zealander. Uh, some of the guys, some of us do this. Um, I do this too. Uh, sorry, but you know, we hear uh, someone's accent and we kind of, you know, uh, point the, the the accent out and and. Uh, you know, quite unintentionally, we might even make them feel a little bit bad about uh, their accent. I had a very thick New Zealand accent. I mean, I have a very thick Australian accent now, so maybe I swang the other way. But I, I definitely did have a very thick New Zealand accent at the time. Maybe that was the reason why. Maybe it was because I joined in Year 6, and uh, the group of you know, so-called friends that I tried my best to hang out with, they all grew up together. Maybe I was the outsider. Uh, maybe it was just unintentional, but, but they just, I guess, marginalized me, just simply put, because uh, I joined later. Or well, maybe it was me. Uh, maybe I was unlikable. Uh, maybe uh, it was that. Whatever the reason uh, might have been... Uh, being sort of you know teased and being the butt end of vicious jokes, uh, being left out of, of sports teams and um, um, on the playground. I mean, we, we laugh about it, but but if you're in that space, uh, it's rough, right? Maybe maybe you know a little bit about how I felt back in the day. Most of us at some point or another uh, have experienced something similar uh, when we were treated unfairly in a social setting. Maybe it was back in the day. Maybe it's now, in work, uh, in the workplace. Maybe you're marginalized. Maybe you're left out of the gathering. Uh, For those of us who have gone through it, it's horrible. We know how horrible it is. Uh, And I imagine for every one of us here, uh, stories like this make us feel a deep sympathy uh, to those and for those who are victimized in that way. Uh, How can kids be so mean? Why can't they just play nice, right? That's Uh, what some of your parents might be thinking when you think about uh, your kids. In this section of the book, uh, we get a first glimpse of a specific problem that uh, James was addressing to these Christians. Uh, Just like us, um, James had heard that there was something similar to bullying going on when Christians got together at that time to worship on Sunday. Uh, James takes this opportunity to specifically address a specific problem. What is it? I mean, we read it, right? It's pretty obvious. They were giving attention to rich people and discriminating and bullying people who were not so rich. Uh, As we'll find out, sorry, I'm going to do that now. There you go. The problem of partiality. Uh, As we'll find out, God has much to say about this word, partiality. Another word, uh, Two other words might be favoritism or, or discrimination. Partiality, favoritism, discrimination, topics that I believe uh, speak volumes into our own present culture that is greatly concerned, I think in many ways rightly, with seeking equality uh, in society. Now, of course, the word equality means different things to different people. I don't have time to get into uh, the semantics of that, but uh, at the heart of today's passage is a reminder for us as Christians who hold to the faith of Jesus Christ, verse uh, 1, to hold on to also a a sort of Christ-centered equality, if you will. Uh, In our first point, uh, we will look more closely into what this kind of equality looks like, or, or rather, as James puts it, uh, what it shouldn't look like, and spend uh, the uh, next two points on why Christians must, it's not an option for us, it must uh, pursue this type of uh, equality. Uh, so uh, follow along uh, from verses 1 to 4, that's our, our first point. Uh, my brothers, show no partiality. and become judges with evil thoughts. Back in uh, 2017, uh, you know, back in the day when we could still travel, um, I had the chance to visit what was at uh, once uh, the biggest uh, and uh, most famous church in the world. It's called the Hagia Sophia. Uh, it's now used as a, as a Muslim mosque. It's located in uh, Istanbul in Turkey. And there it is. Uh, what struck me, Uh, most when I visited. It was a great place to visit, Uh, but uh, what struck me most was uh, when I uh, went up to the second story of the church. Uh, There's a sort of section, and in the section there was a billboard that said, reserved for the emperor and the royal family. Um, There it is. That's the dividing wall, uh, quite literally speaking. Uh, From what James uh, seems to say here, It seems like uh, the early Christians were also guilty of doing something like this in their church. Uh, They also had a bit of a habit of paying extra attention uh, to rich and influential people who came to visit their churches. And on the flip side, he seems to have heard, or maybe even seen perhaps when he visited this church congregation, these same Christians discriminate against people who came to their churches who were not influential, who were from the lower social class, who were not very rich. Telling them even to stand over there or to sit at our feet. Now, it's hard for us to kind of conceptualize what this would have looked like, right? But let me try to modernize the uh, example or the description. Imagine if our parking team uh, were told by me and the pastors, Uh, to specifically be on the lookout for the types of cars uh, people drove. I tell them, okay, parking team, any car that looks like it's over a mil, right? Any car that is over a million dollars, give them special attention. Greet them specifically, nicely, and personally direct them to the best car park in this uh, uh, school, and also, just on the flip side, any car that looks sort of old and, and semi-broken down, maybe, you know, uh, before the 2000s, it looks like a model from the 90s, etc., etc., uh, just kindly but gently sort of tell them to park uh, out of uh, eyesight of everyone else, just maybe maybe outside uh, the church, maybe, maybe in the downstairs car park. Uh, sounds ridiculous if we put it like that. And you might be thinking, this would never happen at Kingsway. I don't think it will. So then how is this relevant for us? It's a good message, but you might be sitting there thinking, well, how is this relevant for me? I don't suck up to rich people. I, I tend to do my best to look after those who are not so well off. There's nothing new here. Now, the trick, or the, uh, the key, rather, is in the first couple of words. Brothers. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus. No partiality. That word we see translated as partiality or favoritism is from a a Greek word which is taken again from a Hebrew word. So it's a translation of a translation. And in the original, it means literally uh, receiving the face. Receiving the face. Now, what does that mean? Well, to receive the face was a Hebrew saying used to describe when we make judgments and distinctions based on external circumstances, external considerations, wealth. But it also covers things like social status covers things like reputation, how popular one might be, uh, race, especially back in those days when uh, race and social status were very uh, intermingled. This one word, partiality, receiving the face, should give us room to pause. It really should. Sure, I don't think I treat people differently based on how expensive their car is or how rich uh, they might be. But, but here's a question for us that I think we need to address. How else do I tend to receive the face of others? What other external circumstances do we instinctively, intuitively weigh up before committing to a conversation or an invitation Whatever it might be, I think it is incredibly naive for us to think that we don't have a particular or particular sets of uh, external considerations when we weigh up uh, looking to sort of buddy buddy up with other people. Do I tend to uh, talk to, hang out with folks who only help me? Uh, Do I tend to only talk to and hang out with uh, folks who agree with me? Folks who are already sort of close to my external social circles. Uh, Pastor Ray Galea, uh, who uh, passes out at uh, Rudy Hill uh, here in Sydney, uh, says that this partiality goes beyond rich and poor. It it speaks and cautions churches uh, of the danger of becoming a church of cliques. He says this, um, whenever someone says our church is a clicky church, it should feel like a knife being plunged into our heart. A clicky church is a church where favoritism has taken root. There have been a number of times uh, at my previous church, and once or twice at this one, where this word clicky, was used to describe it. And Ray is absolutely right. It should feel like a knife being plunged into our heart. Because it means that there are unspoken external considerations at play in the background, which excludes and marginalizes the people who are here in our church. The outrage we feel when we read the words of James here, where the early Christians committed the sin of partiality, of discrimination, where they get the rich to uh, receive special treatment and the poor to be mistreated. We so often miss that same feeling of outrage when we see a different type of discrimination that can happen in our churches today. In Kingsway, the way we receive the face of one another is not, I think, overtly at least, uh, by way of you know, how rich someone is or how poor someone is. And I'm thankful to God for that, and we should be thankful to God for that, that that, that kind of uh, wicked, disgusting discrimination does not happen here. But I, I do wonder... And this is the question that I want to ask you. How else do we tend to receive the face of one another? The external considerations that cause distinctions and even sometimes divisions in our own culture that we live in, where we work, where we live, our personalities, our ethnic background, our upbringing, I can go on and on. Differences between human beings, if we look long enough, are plain for us to see. It's naive, again, to think that we are all made the same. We are different. So then, in the midst of that difference, there is the challenge. Use these differences to encourage equality, not partiality. Not discriminating and not creating a church of clicks. Now, given all of this, sounds good, but I'll say what many of us might be thinking: that sounds pretty hard, right? There's a there's a reason why many churches and in many other sort of I guess uh, gatherings of human beings where clicks happen, right? Clicks form. It's easy to stick with people of your own style or tribe, folks who are like you, who benefit you, who you naturally have the same interests, as hard as it is uh, to do otherwise. Uh, James gives us, actually, I think, two very solid reasons to push back against our internal, I guess, complaints of this command. I think it's two reasons that Christians cannot ignore. And here's the first, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Now, the Apostle John says it a little bit easier, and I'll read it out. We love because he first loved us. I remember uh, before I was uh, called into uh, ministry, and this is when I was very young in my faith and very immature. I mean, I'm still immature in one sense, but back then I was even more immature. Uh, And I used to sit there, like you are now, listen to the preacher, like you are now. And often, too often for me to admit, I would judge the quality of the sermon. I would uh, sinfully judge my pastor for so many things. Whenever a a, a sermon didn't hit me right, whenever I sat there dozing off, right, when the uh, pastor was preaching, I wouldn't blame myself. I'll blame him. Sermon's rubbish. Didn't do a good job. Obviously, he flaked out. Whenever uh, I needed advice from uh, my church leaders, and they took too long to reply to my text message, I would say, don't you understand? I'm in distress. Why can't you reply to my text message? Why did it take two days I would panic, and I will judge them. Sometimes, and this cut me real hard, uh, I would hold a little bit of resentment uh, with my pastor when I would see them for the 17th time, and they would say, good to see you. Welcome to church. What was your name again? I'm like, are you serious? You forgot my name again? And I can go on and on. But as I grew into my role uh, as a pastor myself, I slowly began to understand yeah, pastors are not perfect. Um, sometimes, uh, when we prepare our sermons, we have bad weeks. Right, life gives us lemons. Things happen. We can't spend, uh, you know, how many long hours we wanted to on on a talk, and sometimes it falls flat. Uh, sometimes, uh, I realize that I'm not trying to uh, handle and help out one person, but many people with many problems, with many burdens. And juggling that is hard. Sometimes uh, I forget the names of people too. (laughs) So I understand, right? Sorry, guys, if I forgot your name. Uh, I'll do better. Now, the point of that is, in the same sort of vein, but I guess sort of uh, uh, in in the opposite uh, direction, in the opposite order, James is telling us that these Christians who mistreat the poor for goodness sake, they were once poor as well. They were poor in the world too. But now are rich in faith because of Jesus. How can a person who was once poor and still, even still, loved and welcomed in by God, how can that person then go ahead and mistreat and discriminate against other people who are poor. Verse 6, you have dishonored the poor man. I'll say it this way. Christian partiality is a gospel issue. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, the reason why you are here, the reason why we have faith in God is fundamentally based on weak people coming to a perfect God. It is based on the poor becoming rich in faith. It's the different, the broken, the ones who do not have anything to offer coming and finding everything they need in Jesus, being saved through the blood of Christ. Jesus himself said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, here James uses the analogy of rich versus poor to make this point, but I think this also works uh, in our own spaces of personal bias, our personal biases that that we employ when we receive the face of others. You see, friends, what if we were to have folks come to our church who were a little rough around the edges, let's say. If visitors who are a little bit messy in the moral sense come and check out our church, what do you do? Maybe we don't confront them like these guys did and say, hey, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, right? We don't want to, you know, get involved in that. But maybe we don't, that's the point. We don't get involved. We don't engage them at all. Again, didn't Jesus come to heal the sick? He didn't come to hang out with folks who are well? Then why is it that we hesitate so much to embrace the morally messy in our church? Uh, Yesterday was the Mardi Gras Festival, so in that line, let me say this. What if a person who is of an LGBTQ plus background, maybe a friend of a church member, or maybe a local around Hunters Hill, came to church. How would we react? What would you do? Is God's saving grace not also for them? Doesn't God have the ability Power and the willingness to save people, even such as them. You know, there's a there's a beautiful passage, um, a verse in First Corinthians, and basically Paul lists all these sins, and he says these folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. And amongst that, he talks about uh, folks who are of the uh, LGBTQ uh, plus background. In verse 11, straight after, it's such a hopeful passage. He says, And some of you used to be like this, but now you are washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. The gospel is for all kinds of people. You see, when we receive the face of people rather than seeing them as sinners just like you. Sinners in need of Jesus. It betrays what we say we believe about Jesus. The act alone of intentionally adopting partiality exposes a malnourished understanding of the gospel, God loved me when I was poor, but I don't love the poor. You see, if we think of this issue primarily through the lens of comfort and discomfort, that's probably what we are doing now by default. How comfortable would I be when I speak to someone who is not of my, you know, folks? How uncomfortable might I be? I don't think that is enough for us. In all of these scenarios, and all the things that, all the scenarios I haven't mentioned, not discriminating and not showing partiality is hard. Because to not discriminate and not show partiality is uncomfortable. But but James here urges us to adopt a different kind of attitude altogether, to see the issue through the lens not of comfort and discomfort, but through the lens of God's love. God who welcomed you in when you were poor, when you were messy, when you were lost in navigating this world's sense of self-identity and self-worth. You came to Jesus, and God accepted you, brought you in, and called you his own. And so isn't the least we could do to give all people... Rich or poor, messy or hurt, name it. all a chance to meet him too. At the end of the day, I'll say it like this. Our God doesn't discriminate. He doesn't. So since he doesn't, we shouldn't either. Yes, he does choose whom he will save. And that's a can of worms that I'm not prepared to go into right now. But what I can say is... The way in which he chooses to save you is not dependent on external considerations. He doesn't care about how rich or poor we are. He doesn't care about how popular or unpopular we are, whether we're introverts or extroverts, whether we're intellectual or not, or feelers, whatever it might be. All, all sort of distinctions within our society. God doesn't care about that. He saves from all types humanity. All categories of humanity, God saves. So, that's the the vertical uh, love from God that should drive our battle against discrimination and favoritism. God loves and saves all kinds of people. Now, the final section uh, in verse 8 to 13 Uh, verse 8 to 13, deals with the horizontal, if you will. So let's look at verses 8 to 9. Uh, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. As transgressors. I think not often, but sometimes, there is a misunderstanding of sorts amongst Christians when it comes to our relationship to biblical commands. Sometimes we think that because Christ has set us free, we can do whatever we want. Our morality is our own to shape. James And the rest of the New Testament, in fact, say the complete opposite. And just so that his hearers don't misinterpret him, he makes it plain in verse 12. Is it up there? Yes. Uh, Let me read it. So speak and so act. So your behavior matters. Speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Another way to uh, translate liberty is law of freedom. Now, we don't often associate law and freedom together. And yet, here, James does exactly that. What is? What can we make of this? Christians are free. Absolutely, we are free. Praise God that in Jesus, we are set free. Not free to do whatever we want, though. But we are now free to speak and act under this law of freedom, if you will. Put it differently. Christians are free to speak and to act under the law of what? Verse 8 and 9. Give us this law. Under the law of loving your neighbor as yourself. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, I believe in Galatians, says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. James is just saying, I mean, probably pretty much saying the same, the same thing here. The royal law is what James calls it—the one rule to rule them all, if you will. Now, did you know that um, in the New Testament alone, there are a thousand and fifty commandments? That's a lot. I don't think I can keep track of all of them. So if you can't, like me, and you know, you're in a space where you forgot uh, a lot of them, remind yourself of this one. Somehow, in some way, it is related to this. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think for me, uh, personally, knowing about the royal law, knowing about this fundamental principle that underlines all other Christian commandments, it, it honestly revolutionized how I lived, how I treated God's commands. It adds a layer of weight that wasn't there before. Think about it. The Bible has a lot to say about watching what we say, correct? Then why should I watch what I say? Well, because... I should love my neighbor. Words matter. Why should I walk in biblical sexuality and practice? Because I love my neighbor. And back to the point, why should I show no favoritism? Because I love my neighbor. You know, James takes it even further in verses uh, 10 to 11. He says for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's that's pretty harsh standards, right? He says for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor. God told us not to commit adultery. That's an act of love for the neighbor I mean obviously he told us not to commit murder and obviously that's an act of love for neighbor that neighbor so in other words you can be really good in all other areas of your Christian faith you could read your Bible and pray every day give away all your money raise beautiful Christian children and be a perfect spouse but if you show favoritism James says, we're no better than the person who failed in all that you succeeded. If you are really good at loving the neighbor that is easy to love, the neighbor of high standing, a neighbor who benefits you, but you do not care about loving the neighbor of low standing, who would never benefit you, who is so different to you, then you have failed in loving your neighbor. You see, God's commandments are meant to not be just a list of do's and don'ts. It's far more than that. It's meant to transform our deepest desires. We obey them because of love. Not only because we love God, but because he has loved us first. We love others. We love our neighbor. Christians are deeply concerned about love. You see, it's what drives our faith. Isn't it love for neighbor that compels us to tell them about Jesus? Isn't it love for neighbor that drives our generosity? Is it not love for neighbor that challenges us to confront our personal biases and show no partiality. Brothers and sisters, if you're in a space where you find it hard to obey the commandments of Scripture, do not be discouraged. It might be complicated, but in this sense, it's actually quite simple. It may not be a lack of conviction or a lack of faith on your part. It might simply be that somewhere along the way of your faith, you have forgotten this royal law, love your neighbor. If you struggle to break out of your clickiness, if it's hard for you to equally love the the rich and the poor, uh, go back to this. Ask God to love your neighbor As yourself, that is the first step, to love your neighbor. I think that a large part of why the partiality problem is so difficult for us to apply is because we are running life without addressing our fundamental driving principle, the rule to rule above them all, the default principle for humans. From my observation, both of myself and of other people, is to be self-oriented, is it not? To preserve our own lives. It's not selfishness, right? I'm not saying that. But I think in general, we tend to put oneself and our immediate social circle before others. Here religious people call it biology. You might call it something else. But I think this is true. And even as Christians, we are tempted to operate in this manner. Me first, then others. But the gospel changes that. Christians who believe in Jesus have that principle flipped on its head. The default principle for Christians is to be self-sacrificing. To put others before ourselves. To consider others before ourselves. All because as James says here. We are governed by this law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, the sin of partiality is not a sin of the distant past. It is a sin that is ever-present here and now. For The Christians of this letter, in this book, they receive the face by judging others based on wealth, based on riches. For the Christians here, in this church, we too judge others based on receiving the face, based on external circumstances and considerations which attract us to pay more attention to one group of people at the expense of another. Hopefully, we can see now that this is a decidedly unchristian and ungodly thing to embrace. Since God did not love us based on external circumstances, and I'm so glad that he, did, he doesn't. But he loved us despite all our circumstances, all our imperfections. Hopefully we can see now that this is a battle of loving the neighbor. Love should drive our motivation. And it is love that keeps us from giving up. James ends his argument in verse 13. So let's end there today as well. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy wins over judgment. Impartiality is an act of mercy, while partiality is an act of judgment. Two roads, which will you go down? Which road will you choose? Will you let mercy win or judgment? If and when we are in any type of gathering, church, work, social gathering, choose mercy over judgment. Choose mercy by resisting the pull to judge the neighbor with external considerations. Choose mercy by giving more attention to those that you would otherwise like to avoid. Choose mercy by seeking equal treatment of all, to treat every person as equally valuable and precious. In every human interaction we have, there is a choice: will you choose mercy, or will you choose judgment? Let's pray. I want us to just sit in this space for a minute or uh, for a minute or two. Just quietly thinking about the words of the Apostle James. Thinking of what he says and examining ourselves and asking ourselves do I have any particular uh, external considerations that I use to choose who and where uh, to talk? Let's think about that. God for help. In one way, this message is so simple and straightforward. Of course, Christians, I mean, everyone, no less Christians, should seek equality, should seek equal treatment of all. But then why is it so hard for us? Well, because we are by nature self oriented. We are by nature creatures who seek comfort above. And yet, as Christians, we shouldn't be motivated by any of these things, but we should be motivated by the fundamental principle of love, love that God showed us in His Son, and the love of neighbor neighbor that we should exhibit to others. So why don't we ask God to help us to love better, to love God more and to understand the gospel more so that we stop having this uh, malnourished view of the gospel by by intentionally, overtly seeking partiality but to do what is whatever it's in our power to seek no partiality, impartiality to rid ourselves of favoritism and discrimination to treat people like God would treat them let's pray for that, let's ask God for help, let's ask God to make us more and more like that, let's pray